Hello, my name is Dana Wilson, and I'm the CEO and founder of CHIP, which stands for Changing How Individuals Prosper. CHIP is a digital platform connecting people like you to Black and Latinx financial professionals. This series was started to give people of color a chance to tell our own stories and thoughts around wealth. We hope to demystify stereotypes that still plague many of our communities, regardless of economic status. So sit back, relax, and let's talk money. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Included series. Really excited uh, for my next guest. And you know, I say that all the time, but every guest is so amazing and shares such an impactful story. So welcome Gordon Jackson, who is the founder of Yellow Block Bed and Breakfast in Brooklyn. So, so happy to have you, Gordon. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited about this conversation. I was really excited to find out about you when I saw um, your episode and I forgot which show it was where they highlighted um, Yellow Block. And I was like, wow, this is so dope. And I was like, this is amazing. Just the whole story behind number one, the name, uh, and then just your evolution within real estate and your nonprofit and all the like really amazing things that you're doing within the community of Brooklyn and really looking forward to just kind of diving in and unpacking all of that. Uh, but like we always start off with on our podcast, the first question is always, when did you first fall in love with money? And when did you feel like it really started to have an impact in your life? So, oh, well, one, Dana, thank you for having me on the platform. Um, of course. Great, great questions. Um, the name of the show was uh, was Stay Here. That was on Netflix. Yes, thank you. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Thanks for watching it, too. I appreciate everybody who watched the show. We appreciate it. Um, but just to dive into your question, you know, when did I first fall in love with money? Um, I'll tell you when I, the first probably indicator I had from my mother was when um, I had lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania when I was younger. And um, she had took me to a church service at Shiloh Baptist Church. And she had given my brother and I a quarter to put into the plate um, for, you know, when the plate came around, you had to give, you had to give money at the church. And she had given us a quarter that Sunday morning to give it to the plate. And when the, when the plate came to me, I put in a quarter and I took back out 15 cents. And my mother looked at me. Wait a minute, wait a right. Cause I'm, that's how I'm looking at you. You gonna make change. <laughs> yeah, I had to make change because I was like, I knew after church, I wanted to go to the store and buy some of the little candy fish and some Jolly Ranchers and stuff like that. So I was gonna need my 15 cents after church. So I had made a decision that I wasn't gonna give up my whole quarter and that um, I was only gonna give up 10 cents of the 25 cents. Now my brother, he, uh, who's a year and a half older than I am, he put his quarter in a plate, but I had made a different decision. Um, and no, no slight on, on giving to our faith-based institutions. We know that that's so important. No, of course, but I mean, Swedish, Swedish fish are important. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> they were like seven to eight years old. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no doubt. So no, needless to say, that didn't go well. Um, she gave me the pinch and I dropped the other 15 cents back, in the, um, back into that plate uh, with Pastor Jones at that church. And at that point, I realized probably at a pretty young age that I was interested in how how to make some money. Even working when I was younger, I used to sweep up hair in a barbershop. I was probably eight or nine years old. That was down the street from the church. Um, I went to the barbershop owner and asked him, I was like, you know, how much would you pay me per day to sweep up the hair in a barbershop? It was Dan the barbershop man. I think he paid me like 30 cents a day. 
at the time I was like, I'll take it. I went home and I told my mother, she flipped out. She was like, that's not enough. You're not making that, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm hustling. Whatever I can do to make some money, I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think I knew relatively young. I would clean out my stepfather's car and take the change out the, I would clean it out because he would leave the change in the crack of the seat. Mm -hmm. And it would give me a chance to find the pennies and the nickels. If I found the quarter, that was even better. And uh, he said, I could always keep the change when I cleaned out the car. So I knew very early on that I needed to stack or try to get some coins together so I could just buy practical things, whether it was a bag of chips and Swedish fish or whatever, whatever it is that I wanted, so. No, that's really dope. And, it, and I feel like you also went down the um, yard of negotiation, right? It was like the money and then the negotiation of why, <laughs> like why I need what I need and why yeah. it's important in this moment, which is another skill set set that we kind of forget about, you know, that we have when we're younger. It's almost like we're master negotiators. And then when we get older, we kind of get a little hesitant <laughs> with it to some degree. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we feel like we lose our space with the negotiation because I think sometimes we're just happy to be at the table. Um, and then depending on how we grew up, I know in our household, money wasn't a big conversation piece. My mother didn't have a lot of it. Um, so I don't think we centered a lot of conversations around it, probably more out of scarcity and maybe just her lack of education about money. But um, yeah, I don't. I think the negotiation piece is tough. It's still tough, right? Because sometimes we don't know how to monetize our own worth, our own value, to make sure that we're asking for the right amount of money. Um, and you know, conversations like this will help with that, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, especially as we start getting into our careers and not really understanding how to, you know, what like what our value is, and even how we even determine that, especially as people of color when we're in different industries and. To some degree, at least we used to be just happy to be there. And now we're kind of in a space where we've just evolved and we know that we deserve to be there. Um, and now we're starting to get to the point where we're asking for more and asking for exactly what we feel like we're worth based on what our counterparts have been doing for years. So I think that's an important part, uh, point you brought up. Absolutely. No, no, there's no doubt. And it's, and, you know, you couldn't have been even more accurate with people of color, with women. I look at the disparities between the income divide. Uh, and I'm shocked, like I'm just hearing this on the radio now, like professional sports, what male athletes are being paid versus female athletes. And it's just, um, it's an, it's insulting, right, on a lot of levels, but that we would still be dealing with these issues uh, in 2021 is, is crazy, right? Um, but we know that we have a lot of work to do in that space. And um, I love it when I hear, like, I, I was listening to the radio or, or to, uh, not the radio, but I was listening to the, I think it was on like the news yesterday and they were talking about um, closing that gap and what that would look like to close those numbers. And I was like, let's get it done. Because um, I know for me growing up in a single family household with my mother, I would never have wanted to believe that she was being paid, although she was being paid so much less than I was as a man when she had so much responsibility. So um, more conversations like that, I think are helpful. Yeah, and to your point, it's like a lot of the household stuff, especially now what we're going through still with COVID, um, does fall on, you know, the, the woman in a single, especially if you're in a single parent household and trying to like navigate and, and figure out how you just make things meet and you get things done. And somehow in some way, it just, it, it, it's there. It's right, that's right. There. Um, and yeah, it's like, we're right at the season of March Madness and we're seeing all the disparities within the sports um, right. arena and how that's really just impacting the overall conversation around women and men and, and inclusivity um, and just equal pay. Like we just, you know, went past equal pay, you know, women's equal pay day and just continuing that conversation in 2021 does seem uh, crazy. And in addition to a lot of conversations that are still going on. <laughs> that, we're still that, that is where I saw it from. It was from, it was on Instagram. It was posting equal pay day. I'm yeah. trying to remember 
source of it was, but you're right, that's what it was from. Uh, and I didn't even know Equal Pay Day existed, but now I was even happier when I heard that, because I was like, good. I mean, anytime we can bring things to the, fo to the forefront, I think we move the needle with the country to make things better. And it, it's gonna be uncomfortable for people, right? But I think um, somewhere between being uncomfortable and in our discomfort, we'll find that space to feel whole, right? Because because um, somebody's getting played out, right? Right mm -hmm. now it's women, right? So if men have to feel uncomfortable and and payroll departments have to feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable and human resource departments have to feel uncomfortable, feel uncomfortable because you're not the one going home every day with less money in your pocket. So let's get right. it done, give it right. takes. Yeah, it's like the only way things are going to change is kind of working together and having those uncomfortable conversations so that we do get to the productive conversations. It's like really admitting what's going on and then trying to move forward um, yep. from there. But tell us about your journey into to real estate, into Yellow Block, and just you know that whole foundational story of how that even came to life. Yeah. So so um so before Yellow Block, there was just a you know I had, I had you know I'd moved to New York City. This was in 90, 1990. Um, then went back up to school, finished grad school, came back to New York in 96 and started working. So back then you could rent an apartment in Brooklyn for about $600 a month for a one bedroom. Room rentals were like $100 a month. Um, you know, I don't even want to tell you what the subway was back then. Everything was obviously cheap. There were no cell phones. It was a different era. So um, I had seen my friend, he had bought a house in Brooklyn and um, I had never been introduced to home ownership. My sisters have since bought homes since, uh, you know, but growing up, we always lived in an apartment that we rented. My mother never owned a house. So I was like, well, when I get older, I want to own a house, you know, but I didn't really understand the mortgage, um, PMI. I didn't understand down payment percentage. I'm not even sure I understood credit, right? Until uh, I messed up a few credit cards in college. So here I am. And back then you could buy a house in Brooklyn anywhere between like 180,000. You could get a house for 160,000. If you really want on the high end, you could get one for 300,000. You know, you could buy houses at that time. This is in 1999. It's crazy how uh, now that's so, like that's so cheap. And not to like, not to just go off the rail a little bit, but well, I just no. was watching um, the, the big, Bigs documentary that just came out on Netflix um, yep. not too long ago. And, you know, a part of that was talking about a little bit about the housing and what was going on in Brooklyn at that time. And it's like, you think about that versus now. Um, oh yeah. Oh, no, it was crazy. But then interest rates were different, right? Because the rates then were like 10% and 9%. If you got 9%, 8%, you were good. But the house then was three, but then you could get a house and put down 3%. So as it relates to me, I remember the first house I looked at was on Troop Avenue. It was like $157,000. Uh, the deal fell through. I didn't get it. The second deal was on um, 375 Herkimer. It got tied up in probate court with Kings County um, with a family member who had passed. And I had stayed in contract for about a year with that house. That house was $219,000 and I didn't get it, it fell through. So now I'm depressed. I have like $9,000 in my hand and no house to buy. So I found this group, this investment group called um, United Homes. I think they've all since been indicted and have since folded the company, right? They, were, they had like a shop, they set up, it was some young guys from Israel, they came in, they set up, uh, you know, buy and sell investment firms, which was very popular in New York at the time. Um, and they found this house for me. And they turned out to be the best thing that could have ever happened for me. So um, I hope everything worked out well for them because they changed my life. Um, so it was a time where you had to be, uh, you had to be a little bit, uh, a little edgy and take a little bit of a risk. Um, and you didn't ask a lot of questions, right? You know, you didn't dive into a FHA report and let me send my inspector in. In fact, when I bought that house on Quincy, there were no doors, no windows, there was a padlock on the door. And then I found out later, they didn't even own it when they sold it to me, right? But I think somewhere between my naivety 
and my frustration from the other deals not working out, I was like, let's do it. Whatever it takes, let's get it done. I'm like, I only have $9,000 in my hand anyway. If a bank is going to loan me 300, uh, they must know something I don't know that this is going to work. So my attorney at the time was my frat brother, um, Hugh. We went to the close and I remember he was telling me, don't do it. I'm seeing a lot of red flags. This doesn't look right. I'm like, sign everything. Let's get out of here. Right. We signed everything. We left the check and they give me a key for a padlock. Or did they tell me to cut the lock off? I can't remember. It was not your traditional closing where they're like, welcome to your new home. There's going to be a fruit basket when you get in that way. No keys and t-shirts and water bottles. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they were a little more. No, no, no. These guys were a little more. I think they were a little different, right? They were like, listen, we're done. It was a Friday. You know, they had the Sabbath. They had to get out of there early. We wrapped this up quick, right? So um, we all became friends as, as a result of this process. Um, Jerry and those guys, we ended up uh, we ended up doing some other stuff down the road. But I, I tell I tell the story how I acquired the house to say um, you have to be a little dumb, right? Um, and if you if you overanalyze the situation too much, you'll lose some traction because um, some you know systems like buying a house. Obviously, banks don't loan you money for a home if they think it's going to fail, right? Um, particularly in a market like New York City. So. Um, I knew that if you bought a house, and at the time I was what, I was 20, I was 29 years old, right? So uh, I knew if I bought a house, everyone said that that was the best thing for financial uh, independence and that was gonna lead to a future. I, I, hadn't, I wasn't married yet. So I was like, well, if you, know, if you have a house now, that's gonna make my life better, right? In the most simplest context, that's what I, I thought to believe and I still believe that. And obviously it worked out that way. So um, I buy this house, Home Depot wasn't even in Brooklyn yet. I think there was one Home Depot on Fort Hamilton. So the one on DeKalb was not here, which is probably one of the largest uh, Home Depots in, on the East Coast in terms of revenue and volume, just given the amount of construction in Brooklyn and New York City, they do a lot of business. So I'm, I'm like running around trying to buy sheetrock, compound pipes, uh, copper pipe, PVC pipe, black pipe, I didn't know any of this. There was no, you didn't even, you couldn't even Google at the time. Let's just keep it really real. This is 2001. You right, couldn't still didn't have the internet together. Like, well, at least we weren't using it in the way that we were using it now to get all of no. that information. No, you couldn't even figure out if you were buying the right product, right? So you had to know some people. You had to ask the guy in the local hardware store to get things done. So um, that's just what it was, right? And um, at the time I was selling medicine for a pharmaceutical company. So that gave me a little flexibility with my schedule. I ended up fixing one floor, then I fixed another floor, then I blocked mice and rats from coming in on another floor, and then I was renting out room by room. And I kind of liked that, but uh, the problem with renting out rooms at that time was one person always bought someone with them, and um, you have to go knock on the door every every 30 days, where's my money? That got tired after a while, um, and, and I did that you know, to sustain the property and to pay the mortgage. I paid the mortgage late for probably the first year every month. My credit score drops, so all that great credit I had and money I had went to the, you know, went into the tank. Um, I knew they wasn't going to foreclose on the house because I already knew it took four payments that you would miss. So I would usually go to the third payment then catch one and then pay it, wait for my income tax check, catch up, get a bonus from work. So I'm only saying that to say um, there was no perfect way to walk into this. And, um, you know, I'm using like every credit card I had to buy materials to keep the house moving. I get into a fight with these guys because they promised to do work and they didn't do it. I mean, everything you can imagine that could have happened, I probably experienced in that first two years with that house because um, here I was stepping into a space I didn't really know about and I got beat up. I remember one time I paid these guys to, uh, they told me they were gonna sheetrock, plaster and prime the whole house. I think at the time it was like $4,000. There's no way they could have did that job. 
I think I gave him a down payment of like 2000 because I was so happy to get that number that uh, I gave him a down payment and then only one of them showed up the next day. So um, it took me about a week and a half to catch up with the other two. We ended up working some things out. Um, and, you know, we, the bottom line is we, we worked it out, right? But it took getting beat. It took losing some money. It took, um, uh, you know, being vulnerable, right? For a better lack of words about the process to get me to the point where eventually I get it into four apartments, right? Now, um, I got four apartments going, I'm collecting rent on each one. So that probably took me three to four years before I even was starting to break even that the house was even like, this was a good deal. I didn't see that for the first five years. Then 14, my brother moved in with his wife and they took the two top floors of the house. I'm, I'm gonna speed it all up to get to the yellow block. Um, just to give folks some sense of what took place before you see this concept of yellow block bed and breakfast. Yeah, because I think also people think sometimes when you just get into real estate deals, it's all just, you know, love and, and nice and, and bells and whistles. And it's just like, the, there's work that comes into it sometimes, right? Especially if you're buying like a fixer up or there's all this types of stuff that you, you have to do, right? And you get in there and just like, ah, you're uncovering all the different things that were just left there. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, no, no, I mean, just be prepared, be prepared to go in to, to, to spend some money mm -hmm. and, to, and to put your hands in to get involved with your work. But I would tell anyone doing it today, it's a lot easier now than it was 15 or 20 years ago because of the internet. Right. You can YouTube pipes, you can YouTube plumbing, you can YouTube cost of labor. Um, and if you're really good with your hands, you can probably do a lot of things yourself, right? There's YouTube videos to show you everything. Those were not luxuries that I had. Um, so I say it all to say, if you're gonna buy a home or if you're gonna you know, try to do something in the way of real estate, be prepared, unless the house is a turnkey that you're walking into it, be prepared to, to, um, to, to put yourself on the front line to make it work, right? And not necessarily your family and your friends, but you as the individual, right? Because you don't wanna have to rely on your family to come here, you know, my mom, my, my dad's a good contractor, he'll come fix it. You know, that's good if your dad or your mother can come help you out. But I think we have to take the onus to figure out how we're going to make this project work if it's something we want to take on. Because 25, 30 years from now, we'll be the ones benefited from it, probably not that. So uh, that's just keeping it very real. So here I come, uh, 2011. I did apartment rentals for a while. Um, had started going through a divorce, and I was like, you know, I need to earn some more money. My, my, life, my lifestyle was changing a little bit. And... Um, we had had the house in Brooklyn and we had lived in New Jersey at the time. And I decided I need to make some more money. So I said, you know what? I had been through room rentals before and that worked. I liked it, but I didn't like that. I never liked the situation where you make the same amount of money every month. Avoid, I've always avoided that because when you do that, that kind of locks you in. And it's like, you don't, you can't really, you can't really think outside the box if you know you're getting $6,000 a month or $2,000 a month because your bills immediately meet up to what that number is, right? So I, I kind of like the room rentals because you could always fluctuate the rentals in the rooms if someone left, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then I was like, wait a minute, why would I rent somebody a room for, for more than 30 days if I can rent them a room for five days? This is before Airbnb, before I knew about it. I'm like, there must be people who want to stay for two weeks. There must be people who want to stay for three weeks, right? Not three months, mm -hmm. right? So I put it up on Craigslist, no Airbnb. And the lady from Florida reaches out to me and she's like, um, I'm like, I'm gonna charge $30 a night for one room. Speed it up. She says, I'm coming to Florida, I'm coming to New York. My health insurance is in New York and I'm scheduled to give birth to twins. And I have to be in New York 30 days before the delivery for my health insurance to work. I was like, I have a market. I know this is gonna work. She comes in, 
she stays in a room on the first floor, which is now the living room. Um, and she gives birth to these two babies. She pays me $900 for 20 something days. I'm like, oh, I'm in the money. This is perfect. Cause now I'm having half of the apartment for 900 when before I was renting the whole floor for 1200. Right. So it's easy math for me. Then she says, guess what, Gordon? Um, one of the twins are still in the hospital and I have to stay an extra week. I was like, more money, perfect. She paid me another. So I was making $1,100 off of half of the floor. So it didn't take long for me to start telling everybody who lived upstairs, you have to move because I want to start. <laughs> it was like, that was it. Oh, straight up. I was knocking on doors like, listen, I love Terry as a tenant for two or three years, but you know, I'm going through the divorce. I need to make more money. And I, to, to the credit of my tenants, every one of them understood that. Mm -hmm. We had a great relationship. And over like the next two years, three years, they all moved out one by one. Mm -hmm. So when I first started Yellow Block, uh, and the reason why I called it Yellow Block is it show talks about on the, on the show was because my son, when he was little, he's now, uh, he's not little anymore, he's now uh, 18 in college, he's a second uh, semester freshman at Morehouse, um, he used to play with a little yellow Lego when he was little. So um, everything I ever called Yellow Block is a reminder of, of what it meant to him to play with this toy and it was a sense of safety and security. So when I started uh, Yellow Block Construction prior to that, Yellow Block. When I said, I'm going to do the bed and breakfast or do this vacation rental theme, yellow block. So to speed it up, make a long story short, uh, I had started with the, the woman who was pregnant. She came in. I saw the immediate revenue come in. She was pleasant. She came very nice. She left very nice. I wish I could find her to this day because she was probably my first paying guest that came in. Um, she came in, she paid. And then I said, I think I have something here. And then about two or three months later, a frat brother of mine told me about Airbnb. But even before that, I had heard of HomeAway and um, what was the other? I think it was HomeAway. I had signed up and got on HomeAway, which started bringing me bookings immediately. So um, now I'm doing like, I'm like, as each room opens up, I'm doing laundry in the middle of the day. I'm going there in the middle of the night when people leave. I'm cleaning the refrigerator. I'm cleaning the bathrooms. I'm making beds. I want to make sure the house smells like fabuloso or like pine soil whenever you walk in. Oh, All yeah. It be white. <laughs> I mean, I knew because I had worked in hotels when I was a little bit younger, uh, upstate right. New York. So I knew what quality, and I had stayed in some hotels, obviously, at that point. So I knew what I wanted to give people. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be an experience that you got more than what you were paying for. Um, I never I never wanted someone to come in and feel like, they because they paid $30 a night or $40 a night, that was reflective of what their stay was. I wanted them to feel like, this was a good deal. I want to come back. So um and that that's was your marketing too, right? Because it's like when you set prices that low, people do ex like they're not even expecting. So it's like to walk into okay. something and and you be able to say, "Wow, this is not not at all what I expected in a good way." That's that's exactly. And then I'll be honest, I felt as a as a black man in Brooklyn, inviting people into Bed Stuy, I felt like I wanted to make sure that when you left, you knew that um, that you were safe. Mm -hmm. that you had a quality place to sleep and rest your head, that there would be plenty of hot water. Um, I put three hot water heats in the house, so I could I could run showers for 25 people back to back. I still can. The hot water would never go out. Um, the heat would always work. The ACs would work. I didn't want there to be any reason why you left Bed-Stuy thinking that you had a, an experience that was less than, than average, right? Because I felt like I was kind of championing um, hosting and vacation staying for all Black folks in Brooklyn. And mm -hmm. any narrative that you may have had about us about not being able to provide you with a quality stay. And as things picked up, I started having more friends or more, more guests rather who were coming in from Europe. They were coming from Belgium. They would come from South America, Central America with a very different understanding of what it would mean to stay. They were, they were willing to take a risk and to take a chance and say, I'll stay here. I want to make sure that you get that plus some. 
So uh, that was kind of my driving motivator probably early on to make sure that the stage were really good. And then um, things that kind of picked up 2011, 2012, 2013, every year the revenue was increasing. I think the first year I did about $4,000. And then the second year I did about 40,000. And then it went up to like 60,000. And then I was seeing like 80,000. And then I was seeing over 100,000. Then I was seeing like 150,000. And then I was like, wait a minute. This is a lot of money. Now, clearly, it's not all profit, right? You're right. buying furniture and beds and paint. You're renovating as you go. But um, I was beginning to see a continuous amount of revenue coming in. And I was like, this is kind of working. And I'm enjoying it. And um, then I get a, a random call in 2018 from Netflix, really from a casting agent who reached out and said, um, you know, we had sold your property and um, we're casting for a show on vacation rentals in New York City and renovations. And uh, we're interested. So, you know, naturally I was like, yes, no doubt, let's do it, right? <laughs> right, like that's all marketing for you. That's a whole nother layer of just yeah. anything that I you can imagine. It's true, I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Because yeah. if you remember in 2018, New York City was in the middle of kind of unpacking all of these laws about vacation rentals and home mm -hmm. sharing. And the city council had a bunch oh, of- Oh yeah, what's going on in uh, Jersey City when they were just, you know, residents were starting to get upset about, you know, Airbnbs versus all these buildings that were popping up and all the competition and yeah. I mean, the hotel, I could have went a whole way. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if I'm making this kind of money, why would I put myself out there for additional exposure, right? I can either stay under the radar and be quiet and operate the way I am, or I can, get on Netflix for what? Like it, did, it didn't, there was as much as I was uh, enamored with the idea of being on TV, I think we all are to a degree. Um, I'm not a very public, public person. So it was a, it was a bit of a, of a leap for me to say I want to be filmed and I didn't know what that involved. And then I, of course they want the kids on the show mm -hmm. and that was going to require some other levels of permission. And that was going to be a whole different type of conversation. So I didn't really know what I was getting into but I never said no. So every time they would call me, I would say yes. Yes. And then they told me I had to put down some money. So I think my commitment to be on the show was $25,000. Fortunately, I had it mm -hmm. uh, to contribute towards the cost of my renovations, uh, which I didn't know that when you see these home makeover shows, you think they come in and pay for everything. That's just not true. Most yeah, I think that's what a lot of people think is they just come in and they just like do it all for you. And it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's like you not, always wonder what I was <laughs> how much they do it and how much we having to you know actually shell out <laughs> yeah no not so the the minimum you could put in for this particular show is twenty five thousand, right and you can go upwards of whatever you want so naturally i'm gonna put in twenty five thousand, right because i'm like if i did the math i'm like so if i get on netflix for twenty five thousand dollars for 30 minutes i think i had googled at the time what would one minute on netflix cost and i think the google showed something like uh hundred and sixty six thousand dollars per minute if they sold advertising space which they didn't so I was like, wait a minute, I'm getting 30 minutes. I did the math, 30 minutes, 100, and, you know, for 25,000. It was, it was a no brainer, get on the show. <laughs> so at that point, you know, we start the whole process of architects and planning. There was a whole bunch of pre-work. I want to really definitely recognize the folks at uh, Critical Content. They were the casting company that casted me. Um, the whole team at Netflix from Genevieve uh, uh, Gorder to, uh, to, um, to uh, the, the entire casting crew, right? They all came in and really just made this process um, um, digestible for me, and they made it possible for, for this to work, right? Um, Peter, I could, we could not have done it without Peter, who was the co-host on the show as well. Um, and they really kind of helped me tell my story to 50 Grand, who was the DJ who came on the show, who was Big's first DJ, who came in as a volunteer. He didn't even get compensated for it. 
to give some narrative about Bits history on that block and what that meant to Bed Stuy. So um, people really just kind of came together and made it possible, <clears throat> excuse me, for this to be an opportunity for me to tell our story. And the story was quite simple. Uh, 208 Quincy Street, which had now become Yellow Black Bed and Breakfast, was a premier vacation rental for groups and still continues to be a premier uh, vacation rental in destination for groups coming from all over the world. And um, I never wanted to make price a barrier for guests to come in. So um, I've always kept the price consistent before and after the show to make sure that no matter what someone's economic situation was, whether it was a student group, a church group, um, a fundraiser, um, a funeral, a wedding, that cost would not be a barrier for you to, to come to New York City as a place to celebrate whatever it is you wanted to celebrate. And, um, and I think that's so important too. It's like when you think about your overall give back to the community and what you really wanted to sell, which was the story, right? It's not even so much, you know, coming in and selling the property because, you know, you know, that was amazing, but it's like the story and the history of what Brooklyn means and what it means to this um, particular community in, in Bed-Stuy, right? And how amazing it is to have all of these individuals be able to look at Bed-Stuy from a different lens where it's like you see stuff on TV and there's always all these stereotypes around community and around black businesses and to come in and just have this really amazing experience that is economical um, friendly for all even after the show aired right and you got all that kind of press and recognition like you still kept it to the community and to you know the to, to the story and kept it really authentic. Yeah, that, that was so important for me because um, I think during the show, they had said to me, are you going to raise the price? And I was like, no. I said, that's never been part of my business plan. And I'm sure as time goes on, I'll look at that and, and make some decisions about making some adjustments as some costs go up. But, um, you know, I, I just didn't want that to be a barrier. And I knew that I could still get my bottom line number and still do, you know, do enough to, you know, because my purpose was to create a, a revenue stream for my children and for my children's children, God willing, that they will have something that they can hold on to. But that didn't have to come from every person who stayed there. Um, if collectively I was able to spread that out and really focus on the brand and focus on um, over exceeding what people's expectations were, that the money would come. And, um, you know, we're talking about money and when we fall in love with money. I don't know if, if I've ever chased the money as much as I've ever chased not wanting someone to say they had a bad experience. I think that was a bigger deal for me. In fact, I'll keep it really real. I've had guests who come to the house and things didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. But you won't find any of that in my reviews, right? Because that's where money came into play to resolve any irregularities with your stay. So if you were there and something didn't go to your satisfaction, it's nothing for me to make a decision and say I was going to make you a refund on a portion of your stay. I didn't want to be like a hotel. When you go to a hotel and you're not happy, they want you to come back and stay. Right. They're like, so what? Right. They're like, whatever. And you're like, I didn't want to stay here now. I'm already not comfortable with, what, with what's transpiring. I don't think I'll ever come back. And I'm not really interested in 25% off on my next day, right? What can you do to change this narrative now? And um, I'd send, I'd send lunch over, I'd send dinner over, um, you know, maybe send over uh, whatever the kids wanted, whatever it would take to make sure that those guests felt the way I would want to feel if I was not satisfied. Now, fortunately, these were all small things. It was nothing major, but it's major to you if you're there with your family and your wife's not comfortable and you pick this spot and you're the husband or you're the wife and now everybody in the group is upset with you. I, I don't want you to. Bear you that don't want to be that guy. No, no. I, I know. I, I didn't want to be like like the mom from Spain who picked the house, and the dad is upset because you know he 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 wanted the bathroom to be here, but it was here. 
I'm like, listen, I can't move the bathroom. Right. But what we can do is we can do this, right? And I wanted him and his wife to walk away feeling like completely enamored with her decision-making or his decision-making. And I didn't want to be a part of fraying anybody's experience. So that meant a lot to me. It still does. Um, and, and those were the type of things that I would do. So when you read the reviews, there's a backstory with every review that really has a deeper meaning that, uh, that it's, all, it's all genuine, right? Like I would go every length I would have to go through to make sure that your stay is going to go well because you only get those four days to come to Brooklyn. You only get those five days to get married. You only get those six days to bereave. And I don't want any part of your selection about where you sleep with your family to impede upon that experience. So. Well, I feel like that adds to the overall just success of what you've what you've been able to build and really create is that focus on experience and customer experience. And I mean, that's really what sells, right? It's like focusing on making sure that people are happy and they feel safe and they feel like, oh, this is somewhere that I want to come back. This is somewhere I want to share um, with my friends. What have you kind of learned along the way or what would be your biggest advice to someone who's now kind of looking to get into the real estate? state market, whether it be in New York or maybe anywhere else? Um, get in, get in. I just, I've recently purchased another property in DC. We're finishing that right now. Um, I would tell anyone that wants to get into real estate, get in. Um, there are no bad decisions. I mean, obviously look at different trends in different markets. Um, and, and don't, you know, don't, don't let your, like, I'll give you a case in point, right? People always like, I don't know if I want to buy my first house. I don't know if the ceiling's going to fall in. Well, I don't know if I've ever been to somebody's house and the ceiling just fell in. That doesn't even happen. Right. That's when we start reaching. Like, <laughs> listen, yeah, all the pipes are going to bust. I've been to many people's houses and I've not sat in somebody's living room and the pipe just started busting out the walls. So don't let your fear and anxiety about what you think can go wrong. What if the electric is bad and the house burns down? How often does a house burn down from electrical problems, right? Usually if you plug in two heaters and burn a candle and someone is smoking a cigarette and they fall asleep, that's when the house burned down, right? So I think um, we have a lot of reasons that we can put in place for us to be afraid, right? And I would say for anybody who wants to get into real estate, don't let your fears guide you. Obviously, banks don't, laws, don't loan money at these rates for, for things that fail. So the bank, even if you're not making a good decision, rest assured the bank is gonna send an appraiser and they're gonna check your credit and they already have a system in place that's going to kind of, uh, you know, kind of tease out the algorithm to make sure that this works for you. Even if you're just the most naive home buyer, it's designed for you to win, right? It's not designed, buying homes in the United States are not designed for homeowners to fail. Now, now where you might fail is getting yourself into a loan that you can't manage because it has a, a fluctuating interest rate or there's some terms or some penalties that just aren't sensible. But you can Google how to avoid that, right? Um, so I think... The process or the purchase of that deed transfer for that exchange at the bank, you know, when you go to the closing table, is generally designed for you to win, right? I think where you can go wrong is if you get into renovations you can't afford. Um, you know, should there be some some you know there, there's some there's some things that can fail. Let's not get it let's not get it twisted, right? There's some things that can go wrong, but I think by and large the experience is designed for you to succeed. All right, so, so just don't be focusing more on. Like anything related to your overall kind of strategy that you set up when you, if you think about it as kind of a business, right? If you think about um, buying the home as somewhat of a business and all the different things that you might be able to prepare for to some extent, right? Just make right. it so you have a little bit of a cushion just in case, like, well, you know, I'll, I'll take it a step farther. I think too, like if you're a parent, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, 
for children who grow up and for children who grow up and say, look, I'm going home to my house versus I'm going home to my apartment. I think, I think there's a different narrative with that, right? Let's keep it really real. I think kids who grow up, I know we grew up in an apartment and I knew that there were times I was embarrassed to say that, right? Versus my friends who said, come over to my house, right? So if nothing else drives you as a parent, I'm buying this house because I want my kids to say, I'm coming home to a house. Now we know that that's not the whole American dream, but if it satisfies your kids between the ages of nine and 15 until they realize you made a bad choice, give them that boost of confidence because that may be enough to get them to say, I want to buy a mall, mm -hmm. right? Or I want to buy a building, you know, with, with 10 apartments that instead of renting one. And I think we've seen um, plenty of, of, of examples where home ownership has led to a certain level of confidence boosting, mm -hmm. where children of, 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 of homeowners have grown up to decide that that's the lowest threshold they want. They don't want to buy a house. They want to buy a block, right? Or they want to buy a strip mall. So um, if for no other reason you don't want to move the needle and you're scared, do it for what it might mean for your kids' kids, because I think that there is a, di a different narrative and a different um, a different. Kids feel more confident, I think, when when they know that their parents are involved in ownership. There's no question about that. I think they're more confident to make uh, decisions that will lead to more financial stability. I, and I could be wrong. I'm sure there's some data on this, but I don't no, know. No, I mean, I think that's a great point too, as you're thinking about like generational wealth and legacy, especially. Yes. Um, you know, in our community, right? So you've got three three sons who are now watching you, you know, run your business, build your business, and, you know, to see it come to fruition and really have success from it and looking at you like, wow, you know, maybe this is something that I can do as well. Do you see that any of your sons have an interest or have really taken an interest in um, what you're doing or want to be more involved? Yeah, you know, it's, well, you know, it depends, right, on what we can actually <laughs> Like they come down and help me with the house in DC. You know, uh, they they they've helped me with like digging the ditches for the new water line and plumbing and demolition. And I'm sure that's not their favorite thing to do. Right. And I'm sure that uh, they've done they've done, they do they used to do all the laundry for the B and B. So they've been involved with this, uh, not completely uh, willfully since they've been younger. But I think that they're like me. I started work when I was eight, nine, ten years old. They'll realize when they get older why I I um I tasked them to do these things. Um, so, um, my, my big, my, my oldest son, Cairo, he's uh, he wants to study computer science. So if he decides he wants to go into some type of real estate, um, acquisitions or purchasing and incorporate some type of technology into that, hopefully the things that we've, we've done early on will, will resonate. Um, everything I do is for my sons. Um, and I want to try to acquire more property and continue to grow so that they can have more, um, because I do believe that, uh, if I can give them a stronger foundation and wisdom, they'll be better off to start their families. And um, when they have their wives, they'll be able to make better financial decisions for their children. They'll be better. They'll be in a better position to be accountable. And um, I'm a little selfish because maybe I'll get some grandchildren earlier um, because money won't be a barrier for them. Right. And, yeah. You know, if that if that's if that's part of the outcome, then we all win. Right. But I also want them to know that they have a responsibility to do right mm -hmm. and to treat people with dignity and with respect. And to um, and to know that um, even today, like the tables can turn tomorrow. Nothing is promised, right? Um, and uh, and that's okay too, right? Because sometimes in scarcity, we're most creative and, and we we grind the hardest. Sometimes you cook the best food with the least ingredients. So there's fun in that too. Um, um, but you can also enjoy that's if you have some. What you say? I said that's real. Yeah, it's, it's like we know that you know the smaller hole-in-a-wall restaurants are the the dimes like that's where the good food is it's not always 
you know, the red carpet, you know, front and center, you know, on the nicest block. It's usually the places that you, you can't see or you kind of got to find out about, right? So it's that same, same level of thinking. Yeah, we live our whole life that way, specifically. Mm -hmm. I, I never want them to lose that grit um, to, of humility and that grit of simplicity. Um, but I also want them to, uh, to, to know their value and to know their worth because you can keep the grit and still get your money, right? You know, that the one, they don't have to be separate entities, so to speak, right? You can, you can do both um, and, and have fun doing it, right? But, you know, if you, you have to be able to move in both, in both types of situations so that you, you, know, you, you know your value and you get, you get paid properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And before we close out, what do you feel um, just from a community standpoint? So I definitely want to talk a little bit about um, your nonprofit and what you're working on there. And how do you think just having the presence of Yellow Block in the Bed-Stuy community has just kind of reshaped the narrative uh, that people just see or have had about Brooklyn, have had about Bed-Stuy um, and, and just kind of your overall thoughts there? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's been positive. I've been able to get involved. With, uh, we've done everything from uh, from food drives with Fresh Direct. We've done PPE and mask distributions. Um, we do a snow removal. I help help the neighbors on the block remove snow. Uh, we participate in block cleanups. Uh, we participated in uh, some projects for Bed Stuy restoration. So, I mean, any chance we get to give back and to put the brand out, we will take it. Um, as it relates specifically, which is kind of what fostered and drove the, uh, the interest in the non-for-profit, which is Yellow Block Community Development Group. Um, we decided to start this non-for-profit and the DC property will be kind of the, uh, the launch of the non-for-profit in addition to the work that we've done in Brooklyn. And um, the whole purpose with the DC house is to create a space where folks can go into the district uh, and be involved in civic engagement, whether or not they want to meet their congressman, their senator, um, if they're an advocacy group that they too will have access to a space where cost will not be an issue. Um, so the whole DC property is really around this theme of, uh, of, of being able to bring groups in to go, to go into the District of Columbia to help, particularly now as we see what's going on politically and we see what's going on socially, we know that more voices have to be heard and we need to make sure that um, folks' interests are being represented. Um, you know, whether you stand on the left or the right, you know, that, that that's the beauty of the United States that you have a chance to say how you feel um, and that people can have a meeting of the minds to come up with some resolutions that are healthy for everyone, right? And um, I wanted to create a space in DC that would mirror what, what was happening in New York. In New York. So um, I found this house in 2019 uh, through an auction and we purchased it and we've been working on it ever since. Uh, in fact, we're like at the last phases, they did an inspection on the house this morning. So we're hoping God willing to have it open by June um, for groups to start coming into DC. It's a lot smaller property than New York. Um, but you could probably sleep 14 or 15 people in that house. Um, and, uh, and to come in and just kind of engage in whether it be sightseeing, whether it be you know seeing uh, the African-American Museum, whether it be going to the monument or the Capitol or seeing the White House or um, any of the, whatever you want to see in DC. There's so much to see. There's such a rich culture in the district that people can take advantage of. Um, and um, you know I've kind of fallen in love with DC too, like I have New York. Um, but, uh, but I think that there's a lot of wonderful things to see, and I'd like to bring that opportunity for folks into DC, uh, from all over the country, all over the world. Right. So that's really what the, uh, the push for the non-for-profit and then to use some of these resources to help, um, uh, challenge some barriers in housing, uh, challenge some barriers in, uh, in incarceration and re-entry and use the money to try to, um, to do some positioning with some, with some initiatives that will help offset some of those disparities.
So that's kind of that's kind of the direction that we're moving in, and um, it's been humbling. And uh, you know, every day is a, is a task, but that's that's what we're trying to get done. That's awesome. I mean, I feel like you're doing so much to not only just give back to you know the community that really helped you thrive uh, within Brooklyn, but just overall in the world, right? It's like now being able to see, you know, where Yellow Brook started, and now kind of see that further development into different cities. And I'm sure DC, you know, obviously won't be your last um, stop. So it's exciting to continue to see that journey and you know where you go from here. So tell people where they can find you and keep in touch with you and. Yeah, of course. So if you Google uh, Yellow Block uh, Bed and Breakfast, or you just Google the word Yellow Block Bed, will come up. Um, the non-for-profit is yellowblock.org. Um, that'll come up as well. There'll be a link. There's a link actually on the page. Um, so you Google Yellow Block, you'll find me. You put contact us. It'll come directly to me or to some, you know, to my son. I want to say to someone on our team, but our team is very small. He's in school right now, probably doing his work. So I get most of the emails right directly to me. Um, we're always looking for opportunities to partner. Um, we'll be doing some more things as, as, uh, as we open up the DC site in June to give folks an opportunity to, uh, to give back. Um, we don't accept donations right now. That's not something that we do. Um, but if we ever decide that we're going to work on an initiative that requires that, then we'll definitely reach out to folks. But um, we're able to use the resources that we get off the New York property to kind of sustain and do what we're doing. So if we ask for resources and donations. We want to make sure that it's smart and that we know exactly where it's going to go so we can be uh, accountable and transparent about how we how we manage how we manage resources so um that's pretty much uh who, who, who i am and who we are and um then i can't tell you thank you enough uh for oh, thank you for coming on this i feel like you just dropped just so many amazing gems and just food for thought i mean the story in itself and you know your journey into how you just got into real estate how you you know developed yellowbrook and have continued to just do this really amazing social impacts um in the real estate community and beyond is is awesome so thank you for for coming on and sharing your story yeah and i'll tell everyone this last as, as we part is um don't be, don't be as much afraid of what can go wrong as, uh, as bad as you feel about if you don't take a, try, take a shot, right? Because I've never felt bad about what failed because um, I'm going to try to make it work either way. Don't, you know, you'll re I think we'll regret more if we don't try. I agree. Um, I definitely always feel like, I try to like ask myself the question as opposed to from fear, but is this something that I will regret not doing? And if yes. the answer is yes, then even if it's scary, <clears throat> to your point, it's just like, just do it, you know? Yeah, what's gonna happen? I mean, the worst case, <laughs> you, you'll get a reset, you'll be okay. I mean, exactly. even the system's even designed for you to fail, right? So right. yeah, let's be realistic. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't apply that to like, uh, you know, free climb, was it uh, free climbing when you climb? Oh, yeah. yeah, there's definitely activities that it's just right, right, not right. applicable for. <laughs> but outside of that, like everything. Alex Lloyd, uh, the guy who does the free climb, I wouldn't try oh, that. Yeah. But, uh, there's some calculated risk I think it's designed for you to win. So thank you again. I appreciate you. No, thanks for being here. And everyone who's listening, continue to look out for our you know, next episodes in the Included series and our guests. Uh, thank you again to Gordon for coming on and we'll see you again soon. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed another episode of the Included series. 
If you're in search for a financial professional, check out chipprofessionals.com and start building your financial team for free. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook at Chip Professionals. And make sure to check out some of our previous conversations. You definitely don't want to miss those. Together, we can change the face of wealth. So let's get to it. Thank you.